You know, it's been a really incredible week in the life of our church. Um, uh, we have in, had influence this week, and I'm so thankful for Amber and her team. And, and let's give them a hand. Just a man. Um, it was so incredible to watch our children just grow in their walk with the Lord and learn how God equipped them. And, and then last week also, our band led at False Creek, and uh, there were a bunch of people saved, and I'm really proud of our band that got to lead at False Creek this past week. And then the last week of False Creek, week eight, it's in, in like you know, another week, uh, they're going back to be the lead for a second time. So I'm really proud of our band that, that gets called to, to, to be a part of that kind of, um, of responsibility, of, of sharing the gospel. And I'm proud of Joe McKean and just thankful for, for our team. Um, and then this week is middle school camp, and that's going to be a part of our ending of our service today, but I'm, I'm so thankful. Now, as a church, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews. We're in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and, and we've been reading through the Bible as a church. If you're visiting today, that's what we've been doing as a, as a body. All year long, uh, we've been just walking through um, the entire Bible, and I want to invite you to join us uh, every week we are reading through uh, uh, um, scripture passages that are taking us through the entire Bible throughout the year. But then every Sunday we will preach on something that we've read this week. And in our Old Testament readings, we've been through the minor prophets, and now we're in the Isaiah, which is a major prophet. Now, I mentioned last week that the, the designation minor and major prophets aren't speaking to their importance um, it's speaking to their length. You'll notice in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah is really long, and it's going to take us a little while to get through the entire book of Isaiah. Amos and Hosea were pretty short, but the, the messages are important in all the prophets because you'll, if you really look closely at Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, which are the major prophets, they often refer back to Hosea, for example, and that's something that, it, that you see. And um, and then in our New Testament reading, this week we've been in Hebrews, and an incredible book. Now, um, I, I, want you to, I want you to see Hebrews chapter 4. Turn to Hebrews 4. Um, because it's been powerful for us to go through the Bible, just the raw Word of God. The raw Word of God is powerful. In fact, Hebrews 4.12, look at it. Verse 12, it says this about the Bible, about the Word of God which we've compiled into this canon or this series of books called the, the Bible. It says, For the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, um, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, that what we hold in our hand is God's Word to us. Now, we live in a day uh, of where, where a lot of people are critical about the Bible. In fact, we live in the time of social media. We are perfecting the art of criticism through social media. Like, think about our, uh, your Amazon stars or your, your likes or dislikes or whatever. We're, we're perfecting this art of criticism. And there's a lot of people that are critical about the Bible. 
And, and I, I get some of their criticisms. One of the criticisms is about the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. Some say Paul wrote it. Some say maybe Apollos wrote it. But we just don't know. We, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And, and, and there, but there's a lot of critics about the Bible that, that it's not very good. But let's recognize what the Bible says about itself in Hebrews. It's like a sword that's sharp, double-edged. That was in the day of the first century. That was pretty, the double-edged sword was a pretty powerful weapon because you could cut either way. So the writer of Hebrews was articulating the most effective weapon he could find. He said the, the word of God is an individual weapon that pierces through not just flesh, but spirit, soul. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, um, one of the criticisms that I hear about the Bible is that, you know, and you've probably heard this too, that the Bible was just compiled by a bunch of men, by, by, by a council. And I've heard people say that. And that's kind of true um, in history. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you've ever studied history of of the world and history of civilizations, and you, you'll run across that in 325 AD, the year 325, Constantine, he convened a council. The first one was a council of Nicaea in 325. And what those guys were doing, what those scholars were doing, is those historians they were doing, they were coming together not to decide what, what's the canon going to be? Because, you know, by, by 325 A.D., that means 325 after the death of Christ. That's how we determined history through time, and that's how we've measured it, which is interesting, right? Um, but uh, they, what they were doing was not saying, we're going to get this council together, and we're going to decide what the Bible is. What they were doing is they were doing history. They were getting together, and they were going, hey, uh, what did the early church refer to and recognize as the Word of God, as authoritative letters? And they said, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's pretty evident. They, 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 you know, they, they looked back at history and said, yeah, okay, they were close enough to go, yeah, we know what they studied. They studied the Gospels. Um, they looked at, oh, you know, there's these letters these acts of the apostles that they studied, these letters of Paul, these books of, this book of Revelation, John wrote that, and, and Hebrews was a book. They were, yeah, 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 the early church studied that. Now, now, if you really think about it, the critics of the Bible say, oh, it was put together by men. Not, not really. What they were doing is doing history. This would be like us in our day uh, looking back at 1698, you know, we're close enough to 1698. There's kind of evidence of what happened. Uh, that was right about the time that people were kind of on their way to America. And we, we kind of can do that history. You know what? Uh, this, this passion for history, it didn't start with Ancestry.com, right? Okay, people have... People have been able to understand where we've come from for a while. So I just want to say that in light of the criti critics of the Bible, um, 
you know, you know it's interesting. I read a guy, there, there's, a, there's a guy named C.F. Evans, who was a professor of New Testament at the University of London, and he said this, Christianity is unique among the world religions in being born with a Bible in its cradle. So from the very beginning, the Bible um, wasn't determined by men. It was, I, I believe, revealed by God. Now, I want to give you some resources, a couple of resources that I want to give you. One is a book, and one is a, is a it's a, uh, what did I say? Uh, it's a field trip, okay? I want to give you a book and a field trip, okay? The book is this, and it's a good book. You ought to write it down, and you ought to consider this book. Now, this is not like a John Grisham book, okay? Uh, this will require a little mental sweat, but you can handle it. It's, I mean, you, um, if you can read, you can, you can handle it. Um, I don't think this is on audiobook, so sorry, you're going to have to read it. Um, but it's by a guy named Paul Wegner, W-E-G-N-E-R. And, uh, and basically, this is called The Journey from Text to Translation. And it's like a reference book, and you, you could wrestle through it. It gives you some insight into how we got the Bible that we hold in our hands. And, and one of the things you'll see that... that as you look at history, the, by the time the, the New Testament was compiled, the Old Testament was pretty established. People weren't really debating on what the Old Testament texts were. But, um, but, but I would challenge you to, to look at the history. And someone that really makes the argument or makes the claim that, hey, the Bible was just uh, put together by men, they really haven't done good history or good research, in all honesty. And I just want you to recognize this. None of us as followers of Je as passionate followers of Jesus and faithful students of the Word of God, none of us had to check our brain at the door to come to that conclusion. And those of you that are about to go to college, I want you to hear that. Because you might have some professors that have, a, that have been to school at a long, for a long, gone to school a long time. And they may make a claim like that. And I just want you to recognize that some people that have gone to school a long time are not always right. And so you don't have to check your brain at the door to follow Jesus. This is a good book. You ought to consider it. There's a field trip you ought to take, and it's to Washington, D.C. And the next time you're there, if you go to Washington, D.C., you, you, you really need to go to the Museum of the Bible. Now, um, I've been several times, and I'm actually part of a ministry. I'm on the board of a ministry that is connected to the, muse <laughs> excuse me, the Museum of the Bible. And, um, um, and we were leaving with a group of pastors uh, probably over a year ago, and we were out, the, out at the front door, and this, this Uber drives up with this uh, lady and her husband and her family, and, and she was really excited to go to the Museum of the Bible, which she should have been. And she connects with us. We start talking. And where are you from? Oh, goodness, Oklahoma. Cool. And, um, and she goes, we're so excited. We've got two hours to go through the Museum of the Bible. We're so excited. And I looked at her and I said, oh, I'm so sorry that that's all you have. Because most people hear about the Museum of the Bible and think, I'm just going to go look at a bunch of old books. And you would be incredibly mistaken. Because that experience will, if you, if you have one day, it's not enough time. 
Uh, and, and I went to, I mean, when you go to the Museum of the Bible and then go to the Aerospace Museum, I did that because uh, I had been, spent three days at the Museum of the Bible. So I went to the Aerospace Museum, and the Aerospace Museum looked very tired compared to the Museum of the Bible. Aerospace, right? I, I felt so sorry for all of them uh, at the Aerospace Museum. You got to go because it's incredible. So we told this lady, oh man, you only have two hours. You're going to see a little segment. You need to go. If you're in Washington, D.C., you need to take a day. You're not going to believe me, so you'll just plan a day, so that's okay. Take a day, and then the next time you'll go, you'll spend three days, so that's cool. Um, but you got to go on that field trip. It'll, it'll be impactful. Now, open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. That's where we're going to land today. And, um, and let's stand together, and let's read verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 12. And it's our practice, if you're a guest today, we stand in honor of reading God's Word. And let's look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, now let's, let's just kind of live here for a minute in Hebrews 12. And so keep your Bibles open, and if you have your phones, keep your phones open to this. And, um, and let's look at that first part of Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, there's a lot of debate on what this means. Does the therefore refer to chapter 11 that there's a lot of witnesses that they just talked about? Because Hebrews 11 is the famous hall of fame of faith. If you're looking at the Heisman house of the Bible, it's Hebrews 11. That's the Heisman house, if you will. Um, and uh, Hebrews 11 is, is, is a great, all the list of the heroes of the faith. We sang about them. Someday we're going to, I love that, that song, Hymn of Heaven, that we sang today. It's one of my favorite songs that, that is new songs that have been written because we will stand beside those heroes of heaven one day and sing around the throne of God. Oh my goodness, that's going to be a concert I want to go to. But what, what are the witnesses? Some, some say it refers to those that have gone before us, and that might be true. Some question that the, the cloud of witnesses might be those that are in heaven right now and are able to see what, what's going on, on on the earth. I don't know. I don't know. I, honestly, this is one of those things in Scripture that are kind of fun to wrestle with and consider. Now, now the Bible does, does give a little bit of evidence that people in heaven know what's going on on, on the earth. Uh, you have the martyrs of Revelation 6 that, that are aware of what's going on the, on the earth. My, my most of you know, my dad passed away in, in uh, 
a few months ago in, in, in March or April. And, um, and you know, my mom and I, my mom was here. We had a big, big event this weekend in our family. My son got married. And at my, at my dad's funeral, Eric wrote a song about my dad, and, and he referenced that you won't be there when, when I marry my wife in July. So I thought about him this weekend. My mom was at my house. I wondered, Lord, in this passage, I thought about this passage. I wondered, well, did my dad see the wedding this weekend? I don't know. Maybe. Now, now, Hebrews 12, 1 makes me think maybe. But, but then I think, you know, I think heaven's going to be pretty captivating. Rick Cuscio this morning, as I was walking through, showed me a picture of, of the sunset on Friday. Um, Friday after the storm moved in, he took a picture of the sunset. And it's beautiful. It's It's striking. And Steve Cole and I were talking this morning, man, that's just a glimpse of what heaven will be like. I can imagine heaven being pretty captivating when we get there. Know this, it's going to be better than you think. And often the Bible opens the window of heaven and lets us peek in. And I don't know if Hebrews 12.1 is God doing that. Letting us know that we are, the witnesses that we are around are those in heaven. I don't know. But it's fun to think about. But I think it's also interesting as you look at Hebrews 12. It's interesting. The therefore could refer to those in chapter 11. But, but what the writer does, it's interesting. He doesn't, as he talks about the race we're to run, he doesn't refer to the, the heroes as the example to follow. Notice what he points to. He gives us challenge. Look at how the passage continues. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Notice this. Um, there are sins that hinder us and entangle us, but there are also other things that hinder us. And notice what the Bible says as we run our race, we're to throw off the sins that entangle us, but there are things that are not sinful but entangle us. I think it's interesting. Let us run with perseverance, it says, the end of verse 1. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So you see in this passage that, that there's a race that you have and there's a race that I have. We're to run the race marked out for us. I think that's important. But notice what he points to. He says, here's the example, not the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, verse 2 Fixing our eyes on who? Who? Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Though we learn from one another and we learn from people that have walked with the Lord, and shoot, I have a, time, uh, a podcast called Time with Giants, looking at people that have walked with God. That's true. That's good. But let's not miss the fact that we look to Jesus as the example. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's Jesus who launched our faith. It's Jesus we trust. It's Jesus we look to. And it's Jesus who perfects us, who grows us. And notice this. It goes on in verse 2. Fascinating, 
for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. That Jesus went, to the, Jesus went to the cross for you and me. And that was a joy for him. Do you know that he loves you? Don't you know how much he loves you? That's why if you're here today and you don't know Christ, yes, it's a fearful thing to die without Christ. But we don't come to Christ out of fear. It's his love that draws us. It's the the cross that drew us. It's, It's when you see how much Jesus loves you, goodness, you're compelled to come to him. For the joy set before him, look at this, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see the window of heaven being opened up. Where is Jesus right now? He's on the throne. Christ is on the throne. He's in charge. This is why I don't panic when fears come in the world or the the threats of wars and rumors of wars. I'm not going to panic because Jesus is on the throne. We see it right here. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is so very powerful. Consider him. Man, I could preach. You could, you, we, could, we could sit here for, for weeks and talk about that idea, consider him. You know, you should always consider him. You should always consider Christ. I want you to notice something we've done today. I, don't, I want you to notice something. It was intentional today. Caleb got up at the start of this service, and you know what he did? He prayed. He prayed. You know what that does, what he did? He helped us consider the king of this place. You know, this wasn't a, a time saver for us or a transition moment. No, we're looking to the Lord. We're considering him. Notice what Keith did when he came up and talked a little bit. He prayed, he considered the Lord. I would challenge us to recognize the power of of just considering him. I'm I'm convicted how often we in our lives don't consider him. This is why the push to be in the word every day, what is that? It's a habit of considering him. It's looking to him. We get into trouble when we don't consider him. This is a lesson we've learned all through the minor prophets, if you're paying attention. God's people get in trouble when they don't consider him. Yesterday at my son's wedding, or, or excuse me, Friday, it's been a long weekend for us, but, um, but we pushed, uh, I've pushed my son and his wife to consider Christ, to look to the Lord for the rest of their marriage. There's power in considering him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The more you consider Christ, the more you look to him, the less you, are, you have a tendency to lose heart. Let's miss, not miss that. The, and what's interesting, the writer keeps pointing to Christ here, the sufferings of Christ. And, and, and notice verse 4. Verse 4 is so very cool. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is not true for every believer. Um, I, I'm going on a, on a trip with the IMB uh, in the next, uh, on Thursday, and we're going to get to go to the house of Corey Ten Boone. She shed her blood for her faith. I've never done that. 
I've never shed my blood for the faith. So, so the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people that have not yet shed their blood, though he pointed in chapter 11 to people that did. But he says right here, in struggling against sin, you realize that we are to always struggle against sin. You realize that, that for the rest of our days, we will struggle against sin, that we will struggle with sin. And this is important to, to remember. Then chapter 12 is really cool because it goes into this, this idea of being disciplined in our faith. Look at verse 5. And, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or, or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every, one, every son he receives. So you notice here that there is a discipline that's required of us. There's a push. There are times the Lord will discipline us, will correct us, and that is right. That is good of the Lord to do this. And notice verse 7, endure suffering as discipline. This is so very important for us, especially in Tulsa. You realize in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we are kind of the launching pad for a false doctrine that is prevalent all over the world. Tulsa is known for the stronghold of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if, if you follow Jesus, you're always going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Now, is it best to follow Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. But let's, let's recognize there are times that God allows suffering to come into our lives. Some suffering we bring on ourselves. If you eat at Carl's Jr. too much, suffering will come to you in your life. But broccoli is a good thing to add to your life. But, but sometimes suffering comes. And look at what he says in verse 7, endure suffering as discipline. So this, this idea that if you somehow are facing suffering that you've sinned in some way is just not a right biblical teaching. It goes on. God is dealing with you as sons. Look at verse 7. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? And we've seen children that weren't disciplined. We've seen that, the damage of that. If you are without discipline, which, which all receive, notice this, who, who receives it? All of us. So if you are never experiencing the discipline of God, you need to really evaluate either are you a child of God, are you a son of God or child of God, or are you paying attention? Now, God's good at getting our attention, but um, it says right here, but if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I don't want you to be an illegitimate child. And that's possible, as we see here. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. That it's this confrontation, it's this discipline that comes that God uses to make you holy. I, I immediately thought of my marriage. I'm, I'm so grateful for my wife. This weekend especially, I've been grateful for her. I stood by her. 
as we watched our son get married. And I've wa- I watched her. I saw her. And I know, I know the kind of mother she has been. I know the kind of wife she has been to me. And I know the way that God has used her to sharpen me. I've seen in that relationship that our marriage has not necessarily been for my happiness, though I've been happy. We've chosen to be happy with one another. But God's used my marriage to, to get the rough edges off, to make me holy push me to holiness. It says, verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields a peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. It, this gives insight that there's going to be moments you're going to be tired. There's going to be moments your knees are going to be weak. That's life. That's ministry. That's serving the Lord. Make, and make straight paths for your feet. Notice that. You make the straight paths. And look at what happens. So that the lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. And, and I just keep wrestling with the fruit of verse 4, where it says, in struggling against sin, we're to struggle against this. And this is a perfect follow-up to where we've been in the Minor Prophets. Because I want us to connect the dots here. We've been in the book of Amos where God's people were rebellious. We've been in the book of Hosea where God's people just forsook him and didn't obey him. We live at a time that say, you know, God's gracious. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do. That That is not true. We are called to follow the Lord and seek the Lord and turn to the Lord. And, 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 that, and it's a New Testament idea that, that disobedience to the Lord will wreck your life. This is true. Many people are wasting their life. My, my cousin, Gary, I mean, I grew up playing tennis. And, and I look at this passage, and my, my family's a tennis family. We, we all, we, many in my family played tennis. And Gary, my cousin, played for Colorado. He's a really good tennis player. He was a Big Eight champion uh, when I was in when I was 15, fourteen. He won the Big Eight for the University of Colorado. He could play. When I was fifteen, my parents—first time I ever got on a plane—my parents let me go to Colorado to play tennis with him, and I was so pumped because he was playing a, a, an exhibition match with Martina Navratilova, a mixed doubles match. You know that name? That's like a famous tennis player. Wimbledon is today. I haven't seen it. I don't know who won, so don't tell me. But, uh, but, but you know, um, I remember being at his country club, and I, I was really wanting to get better. I was so excited to be there because, you know, my, my, my dad taught me how to hit a serve, and I, I can hit a pretty good serve. I can. And so when I was with Gary, I was like, man, I'm going to work on my serve. And, uh, and so I had a shopping cart full of tennis balls, like not just a little shopping cart at Reese's. I'm talking like one of those big Sam's Costco shopping carts that you can put a bunch of stuff in. It was full of tennis balls. For two hours, I'm outside his office at the course, just, just over and over again, hit my serve. And he watched me for two hours. 
and he walks out, and it's even starting to rain a little bit. And he walks out, and I was so, ho- like, expecting him to go, Chris, I'm so proud of you. You're going to be as good as I, I am. I, that's what I was expecting him to say. You know what he said to me? He came out and said, what are you doing? I was like, well, what does it look like I'm doing? Look at all these tennis balls. I had a whole shopping cart full of tennis balls. He goes, you just wasted your whole time. You just wasted this last two hours. I sat in there and watched you just waste your time. I was like, what? He goes, you're just going through the motions. You can hit a serve. But where are you hitting a serve, Chris? Are you going to hit it in that corner right there? Are you going to hit a flat serve in that corner? Are you going to serve down the middle? Are you going to kick it into the body? Are you going uh, to hit it out wide? Where are you hitting a serve? You've wasted your time because you've just gone through the motions. That was the last time I've worked that hard on a tennis court, just going through the motions. But you know what I see in life? People getting entangled in stuff that doesn't matter. People that go through the motions for something way more important than a tennis match, the kingdom of God. And Hebrews 12 pushes us to live a disciplined life. Your life could be wasted. You could, you could half-heartedly serve the Lord. You could live your life in ways that, that don't extend into eternity. And what I don't want us to miss in Hebrews 11 and 12, in the songs that we've sung today that talks about generations, in the moment that we've had, that, that I looked at my, my son and, and a new daughter-in-law, and as I embraced the fact that there's going to be a generation that's going to come after me, that someday... I'm going to be in heaven like my father is in heaven. And this window of heaven is opened up here and this calling that we have to run a race that is not a sprint but a marathon. I don't want us to miss this window of heaven and this discipline that God gives us, this calling that we have. And so really I want to give you five things. You might go, oh my goodness, Chris, it's noon. Yeah, get ready, because I'm going to be throwing this quick at you. I want to give you five practices that will help you deal with temptation. Because that's really what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't get stuck. And so the first thing is this. If you're going to deal with temptation, you need to accept personal responsibility with repentance. My college roommate loves Will Rogers. Every time he flies out of Oklahoma City, he takes a selfie with the statue of Will Rogers. Have you noticed that all of our airports in Oklahoma City are named after guys killed in a plane crash? I love that. That's funny. (laughs) We live by faith, right? Not by sight. Um... But Will Rogers said you could summarize American history into two great movements, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. I think that's funny. 
accept responsibility with repentance. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we've claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If you're going to really walk with the Lord and throw off the sin that entangles you and throw off the other things that hinder you, accept personal responsibility and repent. Second thing, And we've seen this over and over again, to open my eyes to the consequences of future sin. Let's not miss the the lesson of the minor prophets that we've been in, the consequences of future sin. We tend to think that sin doesn't matter, or we look at others' sins, the sins in others' lives, and we think, man, that guy needs to really hear this, and we overlook the sin that's often in our own hearts. Let's not miss Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God judges the heart, it allows you to, it reveals your heart. This is why we need to be in the Word of God. Know the Word of God. He, Hebrews eleven twenty five, which is something that we read, says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And, and sin is fun for a season. The Bible clearly says this. That it's, it, it, there's, a, there's an element of sin that's fun. And the world sees this. But it's like that old joke I used to play in youth ministry when we would have an apple eating contest in front of everybody. And and we would have two apples that we would put caramel around and it'd be a caramel apple eating contest. And everybody was excited about that because who doesn't like caramel apples, right? But the third one was not an apple. Looked like an apple, but it was an onion that we would caramelize. And it was really outstanding to pick the kid that was going to be in the rapid apple caramel apple eating contest and to watch his face the second that his brain connected to his taste buds going, this caramel's good, but whoa, what is that? It's an onion. That's not a really great combination, by the way. You ought to try it with your children at home someday if they're not in this room. Um, But sin is like that. It's fun on the outside, but it's bitter. It's like that every time. That's why God says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I want to challenge you to open your eyes to the consequences of sin. The Bible has been clear to us over the past several weeks in what we've read and what we've preached, that sin will wreck you. Third thing, you need to refocus your attention. You know, sometimes when it comes to sin and things that hinder us, we try not to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that sin. But actually, it needs to be refocused. To not focus on what you shouldn't do, but focus what on, you sh- on what you should do. That's why it's a powerful passage in Philippians 4 that says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So you turn your face on what 
God says to do. This is why God's word shapes our thinking, and this is why we need to know what God has said. When it comes to sin, refocus your attention on what God calls you to do. Fourth thing, when it comes to sin and hindrances, you need to cut off the opportunity for it to grow. Sometimes we, we uh, don't cut off the opportunity for sin to grow. We want to see how close to the line we can get without stepping over. And that's not a biblical example. Like, remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife, that's that incredible story in Genesis 39, where, where his Potiphar's wife kept coming to him day after day, seducing him day after day. And what did he do? He ran. And you know what we have to do? We have to, we have to be honest about our own tendency to, to justify our sin. It's like years ago, I've told this story several times in the times that you've known me, if you've known me very long, but, but I had an intern that worked for me years ago when I was in youth ministry, and I, I loved this guy, and he was about to get married, and, and it was, we were so proud of him. Both the, both the, the couple worked for me, and, and, uh, and the, the, the guy came to me and said, man, I, I, Chris, I need you to hold me accountable. I, I want to honor the Lord in our relationship, but I, I really like Susie. I, sorry, I really like this person. Um, and uh, uh, you did not hear a name that I just said. Um, but um, I really like her. And uh, I, I'm having a hard time keeping my hands off of her. I'm like, oh, you need to, come on. Run the race, man, come on. Honor the Lord. Wait. All right, so we, one came by and he came back and said, man, I didn't do very good. Oh, man. All right, man, come on, you can do it. All right, week two came by and, ah, oh, man, I didn't do very good. All right, week three came by, same thing. I was like, dude, I love you, but this ain't working because I'm like, you're treating me like a priest and I don't think that's the right path. Uh, you're just confessing. Uh, I'm not really able to hold you accountable. I got an idea though. Um, her dad was a pastor, like, like one of those like pastors with those cool voice pastors, you know? Like, I don't have a cool voice. I, I'm jealous of those pastors with those deep voices that can, like, this is the word of God, you know? I, I can't do that. And, and that, that pastor was like, when he said God, I mean, you thought, ooh, man, it's like, the, like it rumbles, you know? And I'm like Pee Wee Herman or something. I, I don't have that. I'm jealous of those guys. Most of you don't know who Pee Wee Herman is in the room. That's cool. Don't Google it right now. But, um, but, but I said to him, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go ask her dad. I bet he'll hold you accountable. You know, <laughs> oops. <laughs> uh, they know, they know, know all the people I'm talking about. And, uh, and you know what he did? I wouldn't have done it, but that turkey did it. He went to her dad and said, hey, pastor, uh, will you hold me accountable to keep my hands off your daughter? <laughs> you know what he said? Absolutely. I can't even do it, dang it. He said, absolutely I would. I can't, I'm sorry. It was really deep. It was really firm. And the next time it got hot and heavy, he's like, I'm done. I got to go. See ya. And that was accountability that worked. You know what? Stop making excuses for your sin and get some accountability that works. 
You know why it's important? Because you look at why Jesus says, why God's word right here says there's suffering that comes. Look, you're going to have to dig deep at times. You're going to have to discipline yourself at times. You're going to have to cut off the opportunity for sin to grow. That's why Romans 13, 14 is so cool. It says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We're to put on our faith like a sweater. I put this shirt on today. You've got you to build a faith and build a life that honors the Lord. We read Hebrews 10. That's what the church is for. To be in the Word of God like this, the accountability cut off its opportunity to grow. Last thing, and I'm going to be done. You've got to encounter the Holy Spirit daily. You realize the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, even right now. In fact, we're going to have an invitation. So Josh is going to come up. And in our invitation, it's a time to respond to the Lord. Like, like the challenge this whole year is to turn to the Lord every day. To recognize that the Holy Spirit has come to us. Christ is on the throne, but do you know what he left? It's the Holy Spirit among us, in us, working through us, guiding us. Andrew, come on up. And, and so you, you lean into the Holy Spirit. You consider him. Consider him. Turn to him. And recognize that the Holy Spirit will give you power to face the most difficult suffering you can imagine. I think I may have mentioned, I can't remember, my services sometimes run together, but on next week, I'm going to be at the home of Corey Ten Boom. Do you know her story? You ought to look it up. I mean, I think I, did I mention it earlier already? I'm going to be at her home. And, you know, she, um, she trusted the Lord in suffering. She forgave when it was hard to forgive. Look up her story. Let me tell you something. No matter what you walk through, the Holy Spirit strengthens you and empowers you. Turn to him. Now, we're going to have an invitation, and if you don't know Christ, oh, come to Jesus. This is not a game. Life's not a game, and this is not, this book, you can trust it. You can trust this. And like I said at the beginning, none of us checked our brain at the door to be passionate followers of Jesus. None of us checked our brain at the door to follow the Word of God clearly. When I feel the critical pressure to adapt this, no, no. It makes sense to follow Christ. It makes sense to look to him. And you know what I'm thankful for? For a church that's going to do things like influence and go to camp, pushing people to follow the Lord. Come to Jesus today. If you don't know him, come to him. You're missing out on life. 
And you don't have to. You don't have to. Andrew, help us know how to respond right now for camp and for you and for what's going to happen this week. Yeah, we're taking a group of middle schoolers to camp starting tomorrow. And um, church, I know we've asked you this uh, two other times already this summer at least to get a wristband with somebody's name on it that probably you don't know and to spend the week praying over them. But we're going to ask you to do that again um, because we've got to be a people that prays for one another. Amen. And um, we're headed to middle school camp. And if I were to ask you to pray for two things specifically, um, one of those things would be unity. Um, In this town, our middle schoolers don't ever get time together. There's a sixth grade center and a seventh grade center and an eighth grade center. And we have a real opportunity to build some unity within our middle school team this week. Um, We also, uh, this week of camp uh, is the most my ones that we've taken to camp since I've been here. Um, If you don't know about my one, my one is something that's been established here for a long time that um, you can help give to send a kid to camp that doesn't know the Lord, that doesn't have a church home. And uh, we have more of those kids coming to camp than we have yet. And so uh, what that means, first of all, is that God is at work in the hearts and lives of our middle schoolers here because they're bringing their friends. And they're intentionally bringing friends that don't know the Lord. And, uh, and so that's really, really exciting. It also means that we're going to have people that don't know the Lord at church camp. And we're going to get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And would you pray along with us um, that they would be saved? And so those are two major ways that you can pray. Thank you for giving. If you give to my one, uh, we're using it. Um, And uh, we're really excited for what God's going to do at camp this week. And so we invite you during invitation this morning to come and get a a, a wristband with a name on it and spend time praying over it. Wear it on your wrist. Um, I know a lot of people want to tuck it in their Bible, but nobody's going to ask you a question about it at work if it's tucked into your Bible. But if you wear it on your wrist, somebody may say, hey, tell me about what's, what's your bracelet about? And you can say, this is Jimmy. And I don't know Jimmy, but I've been praying for Jimmy like crazy. And it give you, gives you a great platform uh, to talk about the Lord wherever you're at as well. And so we invite you to do that. So I'm going to pray over us, and then we would invite you to move um, however the Lord moves you. Let's pray. God, you're good. And we ask that you would move. Would you move in the hearts and lives of middle schoolers this week? Would you move in our own heart and life as we pray for them, as we intercede on their behalf, as we go to you? God, would you work in our lives? Would you continue to draw us more to yourself every day? And these areas in our lives that need to be cut out, God, would you help us do that? Would we surround ourselves with such a cloud of witnesses that can call things out in our lives and continue to walk alongside us? And so, Father, as this body together follows you, would we encourage one another throughout the week? I'm so grateful that we serve a God who is alive and not dead and that we are a part of a body here that you are actively working in. 
And so, God, as we run this race together, would we realize that we could look around and see others running alongside us today? In Jesus' name, amen.